questions and my chart is very very generalized taking the whole economy and the average stuff it's not for a specific industry or a specific uh, situation it's kind of like Sandeep's uh, recursive business and you take all these little bits and pieces and you average them out and you come to what he called the center of gravity well the average all of a sudden you do come to a line which defines the break-even and so on. And of course it can be done in different ways. It could actually be done simpler ways. It's really one, one axis would do it if you um, if you had your dollar per hour which is your productivity and this is zero and then you put you know your, your little points here and this is your uh, bus boy and your street sweeper and your truck driver and your machinist and that and that and that. You don't even need the other axis. You know why I put the other axis there? So I have room to wipe this out. Really, that's all. And somewhere you draw a line across it. Whatever. That's your margin. And anything below the margin will not be, it will be, a, it's a loss to society. And above that, it's gain. And of course, if the government sets arbitrary stuff in here, then this gets all kind of messed up. So, you know, please go ahead with questions and comments. Uh, for, for those of you who are interested in the marginal productivity of labor and the marginal productivity of capital, I have a year ago put on my website a two-part series on the pension problem and just very recently I revised it and uh, Martha Schoon, our very good fan of our story, they would have liked to come but uh, because of other business they couldn't. Uh, she is my web master <laughs> for a long time. People ask me, who is your webmaster? I, 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 don't know. I don't even know what the word means. But now I found out that Martha was my webmaster. And she put on the new version, which is an improved version of the original. What's the name of it, Professor? The name of uh, the well, you know the name of my website, right? Yes. Does everybody know the name of my website? Okay. And it's called The Economic Problem of Pensions. 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 Two-part series. Uh, it was January 2010 and the update is February 2011. But you will see only the update there. The old version was removed. And you are not missing anything because everything is covered on the new version. So this is, I think, in the second part. 
in the second part, marginal productivity of labor and the marginal productivity of capital. These are two fundamental uh, ideas in Austrian economics. And uh, in this part two, I make the important distinction between progressive increase in productivity and retrogressive. Because you see, you don't know what to pray for. Are you praying for a higher marginal productivity or a lower? Now, from the point of view of the unemployed people, they are praying for a lower marginal productivity because then it may just fall down sufficiently so they would qualify. They are sub-marginal as it is, but with a low enough marginal productivity of labor, they will be uh, above marginal and they will find jobs, you see. But uh, if just if you follow the sound of it, you would say, well, of course, you want higher marginal productivity because higher productivity means more goods, more services, etc. Now, this is a subtle distinction and we are not going to discuss it here. But if you are particularly interested in this problem, you'll find the full answer right there. And that's why I thought I would mention this to you. Questions? Yes? I didn't hear an answer to the question whether there is one this country or many. Ah, well, okay. Uh, that's, it's like, is there one interest rate or many? Uh, actually, there is one interest rate for a given Not term. This country. I know, but I'm getting to that. It's, it's the same situation because, if, for example, if one bank were to lend money at 4%, another bank lend money at 5%, there would be an arbitrage opportunity, and this would tend to eliminate the difference. And it's the same kind of thing in the uh, discount rate. And there's no there's an arbitrage. If, if there are some that are lower than others, these will be bought and these will be sold. So the market, the arbitrage is a very benign activity. It benefits, it's, it's what I call not just free market has been abused, a voluntary market. Someone will sell something because they will feel they benefit. The guy dying of thirst will benefit by getting the water, and the guy with the water will benefit by getting the money. It's a voluntary arrangement, although a little duress in this case. But if you have two an opportunity to buy a lower or higher cost good, and you consider that they're the same risk and so on and so forth, well, you'll buy it at a lower cost. So I, I guess arbitrage is what keeps this discount rate even. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm. Okay. And, and it's, um, uh, you see, uh, not a risky business, arbitrage. You are buying and right. selling time to, for a speculation, especially naked. Naked is a very it's gambling, isn't it? Very risky business. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes they confuse the two. That's why I'm saying. Oh, right yeah. Five. Thank you, Philip. Thank you. Sorry? The professor has a whole
Oh, oh yeah, those are my guys. <laughs> yeah, the, so uh, arbitrage is benign because it restores stability. Speculation may or may not. It's a little, it's a little riskier and more dangerous because under, unless it's well controlled, it could drive prices out of, you know, what did Mr. King say that the market can remain irrational longer than the United could remain solvent? That's because it does stuff driven by non-fundamentals, whereas arbitrage will restore things that are fundamentals. I did that work. Further questions, comments, criticism? I, I, I got a criticism that my explanation is too simple. Mm -hmm. And I think that's wonderful. Because everybody thinks this econ economic stuff is so complicated. Uh, Sandeep, who was that guy, banker, who wrote this? If you don't have a PhD, don't even talk to me about economics. I, I don't remember his name. Yeah. So I, did, I don't want to do this in front of the camera, but I gave him that special finger. <laughs> this is obfuscation. It's hiding behind. It's called BBB. Bullshit baffles brains. So you go through the complexities, and yeah, I, I, I want some. Uh, I want that. You want this? Two plus two is four. Sandeep, how, how far can you go with two plus two is four? Can you go to infinity? As close as you want. I mean, you know. And and, and our little uh, thingy here with the with the protagonist. Who says the cotton merchant doesn't sell to somebody else who makes? ropes. You make ropes out of cotton. So there's a, another tributary going that way. And all this, and all this complexity uh, based on very simple rules. But if your rules are wrong, your complexity is, uh, well, here in the book it says, it says, it says, there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root. And that's by Henry Thoreau. This book targets the root. I'm not trying to promote the book. The point being, all your differential equations up there may have no connection whatsoever to the bottom uh, line, the underlying truth, the assumptions are wrong. If the assumption is wrong, all your wonderful calculations are thrown out the window. So, if, and if things don't quite add up, it's oh, I wonder what. Don't tweak the numbers, go back to the assumptions. You know, when, when the gravitational attraction of the galaxy doesn't seem to account for its motion, don't postulate a black hole, a singularity, which is a mathematical entity, but not necessarily a physical entity. Look at your assumptions. Is gravity the only force out there? How about electromagnetic forces? How about other stuff? Well, I don't want to get into a distraction, but that's the whole point. Look at the root, and don't tell me this is essentially too complicated for me to understand. No, I don't buy that. I think Professor Fekete has a very, very clear understanding, much clearer than Mr. Krugman, and yet I understand him after a bit of brain crunching and after four years of reading and studying. But I assume you don't have a PhD or a, you know, differential equation stuff. You can't, uh, you can't use equations to describe human behavior because humans have free will. You can use your equations to describe the behavior of stuff. People learn stuff. Are they even made of stuff? Well, the body is, but who knows? What is intellect? What is consciousness? As you probably what know, <laughs> that's interesting. Sorry, professor. Uh, as you probably know, I, I have taught mathematics for 35 years. Mm -hmm. 
uh, at the same university, so I'm a professional mathematician number one and only economist number two. I don't even have credentials. I'm very much like Frank Lloyd Wright, who uh, was probably the, one of the world's, world's greatest architects, but he never finished an architectural school. And what he established one, and he was not going to have it accredited because he just said, those guys, what do they know about architecture? So anyhow, what I'm saying is that the point Rudy has just made, that uh, uh, differential equations would very well describe the uh, behavior of uh, particles without free will because these are subject to forces, in fact, free play of, horse, of, of forces in nature, and they will have to follow the law of causality. But, and that's what macroeconomics does, and that's what most of mainstream economics does, just take the law of causality assume that individuals have no free will and apply the same. So they come up with lots of differential equations, uh, you know, very impressive if you don't know. But I as a professional mathematician testify, and uh, you can take my word for it, that it's just a lot of garbage. It does not make sense for the reason that once the molecules and atoms and elementary particles, you assume they have free will, they will no longer obey <laughs> the law of causality and they will be not subject to a differential equation. Now, suppose that somebody challenges me on that statement and I would say, let's have an experiment. I am, you say I'm a molecule or atom or whatever, and you predict how I will behave under certain assumptions. So you make your prediction and then he makes his prediction and then I say, well, in order to disprove you, I'm going to do the exact opposite and win the wager, we bet. Okay, you just pay because you lost. You see, that's as simple as that is. If you assume that there is free will, then no differential equation will be obeyed. Uh, because because the, here's the proof. The fellow who is supposed to follow the differential equation say, I want to win the wager, I do the exact opposite. It's as simple as that. So that throws out 90% of mainstream economics. Well, sorry if you finished. I, I said this over here, that some people are down here and some people are up there. So you try to make this as efficient as you can. But what's to keep, what's to keep the, uh, I don't know, street cleaner from moving up the scale? It's, it's, it's his own decision. If he goes to school and learns to become a, a driver, he can go up the scale. If there's jobs for drivers. And so human will comes into this and people are just too lazy or incapable or who knows what to, to be a brain. Not everybody is going to be a brain surgeon. And that's just the way it is. 
And when governments try to impose equality, the street sweeper should get as much as the brain surgeon. You know, that's not going to cut it. To give you an example of that, um, I, for one year, I was a visiting professor at another Canadian university in Nova Scotia, the place where this university is called Wolfville, and the university is called Acadia. It's a small university, but very pleasant surroundings and so on. And the uh, head of the Department of Mathematics, by the time I got there, was retired, an elderly gentleman, uh, used to be a fisherman. Mm. And uh, then he had some aptitude to mathematics, and he was studying and then went to university, and so eventually became. So he retired, and when I was there, he was still giving lectures, and the university paid for the taxi drive to pick him up, take him to the university, just perhaps one course and three times a week, the taxi would take him to the university, he would give the course, and, and then go home. So, you know, fisherman, ending mm -hmm. up with a professor being <laughs> attracted to the university. But that was through his effort. He wanted, yes. he thought, he believed in himself. Mm -hmm. So that's free will again. Mm -hmm. He was not a plaything in the hands of, of blind forces. He was consciously working on his uh, project for several years and, and made it. So further questions, comments, criticism. We're into philosophy here, and uh, if every, you know, I, I put up a little line, and if you're below that, you're fired, you don't have a job, so you're on the dole. Well, what does that breed? It breeds more dole and, and mindset that I don't have to work, uh, blaming, uh, resentment, all kind of stuff. People, do, people need the opportunity to control and run their own lives. And if you want, as a youngster, you want to start off by being a, a babysitter and a dishwasher, oh, that's illegal because it's below the minimum wage. You never get started. Uh, yeah, Keith, I think. Well, this is thing, I find that uh, if people look at social classes and social strata, so the bottom social class has moved forward or whatever 10 years. The bottom social class is assuming you have a free market. It's not the same people 10 years later. Most, by and large, most of the people who moved out of that class, now it's a different group of people in that class. So you can't look at the class in aggregate as a substitute for looking at any person as an individual, because the class as an aggregate is not a good substitute. Again, that you can't use equations to look at aggregates. There's you know, yet another reason why that doesn't work. That's fine. You, you have to look at the individual, and, 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 and I think uh, somebody was talking about well, there are good street sweepers and not so good street sweepers. Sure. And that guy was a good, in, under a free market or a voluntary market and, 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 and with this proper connection and, 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 and a real, what I could call work democracy instead of formal democracy, hey, you're doing a better job. Uh, I, I think you're going to get a little more or you're, you're going to become, there's something. And the, the lowest one, of course, is the marginal street sweeper. And if less street sweeping is required because the streets are already pretty clean or whatever, then, you know, I mean, this all plays out.
and, and there was something about snow, well, if snow falls, you need to hire people to do shoveling. And for a while, maybe they're quite valuable, and then it changes, the snow's gone. So, and it's a dynamic process. All this, uh, it's not an equilibrium thing at all, it's a dynamic thing. And, and uh, again, if there's a glut of brain surgeons, they may, their, their uh, compensation may drop below that of nurses, because there are not enough nurses. I know in Canada, there are not enough nurses. And the bureaucracy and the government control is very tight, and they're not allowed to get a, a raise, and they go to the states, because there at least was, or maybe still is more freedom in the economic sense. So they have less and less nurses. And finally, it's such a big problem that it kind of migrates up to the, the powers that be, oh, we need to pay the nurses more. The ridiculous destruction. Now, a couple of announcements as far as our future is concerned. I heard two things being planned, and if you care, you don't have to, but I just thought if it's not too premature, you might want to say something. Ludwig, uh, you were mentioning that there is a possibility that we could be invited to Munich uh, for a five-day session. Mid, mid well, week. I have a venue in Munich for you to do it, but uh, it's too early to say it's anything. Too early to say anything. Okay, so you don't have any time frame in. in well, the... what we were planning is we wanted to do a seminar in, in the summer in August. Oh, and August. Wow. I'm not sure if you've got anything planned in August. If no, anything, not not so far. Because no. I mean, the Budapest seminar was last year in August. That's right. And that was, uh, so it's about the same time. So when did you when did you have in mind to, to, to make the third session so the continuance of, of this series? Yeah, the, then it would be a theory of interest. This is you could call it theory of discount discourse. Yeah, yeah. So the follow-up course would be theory of interest or the bond market. This is bill market. The real bills doctrine, Adam Smith Ansel, and the follow-up course would be would would that fit your plans? The uh, theory of interest. Is it, uh, it, it just depends on when you wanted to do it. Did you want to do it this summer or next March or? Well, we we could do it this summer if uh, if. Uh, what are you saying? You could have uh, yeah. you want to do. Yeah, basically we have plenty of here, so. Well, anyhow, let's just leave it at that. There are plans, and if you're interested, well, you will know about it. And of course, you know how to keep in touch with us. Whether it will matter or not depends on unknown factors, but you will be among the first one to get a notice from us when it firms up. Now, Keith, you mentioned something that there might be some, we could do something in the United States. Could you, is this too early to talk about this? It isn't very early, so there's no, no firm plans. I was thinking of something um, more concrete and more introductory, something more akin to what we did in New Zealand uh, to get new people involved in this. Uh, so I was thinking of uh, sort of a rough agenda of a bit of background in Hungarian economics, you know, uh, the formation of the bid, the formation of the offer, market maker, arbitrage, etc. 
some background on the financial system of how it evolved to where we are. Uh, a fundamental statement of the problem, what a crisis is what it is, and that it has not gone away. The power of debt, and the fact that paper money and debt is going to collapse at some point. Um, another session on uh, ideas to avert disaster, the idea of opening the mint to silver and gold, the idea of allowing the real gold market you know, based on the sold and silver that should be given to circulate. Who goes to the price? Like those sort of ideas. Um, and then finally, a uh, picture of Armageddon, gold activation, hyperinflation, and collapse. And so I try to put together three days, maybe four, maybe like an optional fourth day if people want to pay more, mm-hmm. something like that. And to try to have a very tight, very crisp set of presentations for, for a whole new audience. Mm. The theory is that there are 300 million people in the U.S. Surely we will be able to get three or 400 of them into you know, a venue like Las Vegas. Mm. Um, I don't know. I, I mm. love phone calls. Uh, you could get um, a good deal from some of those huge hotels. That's uh, right. Because they are empty. He's <laughs> 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 gambling. You said one in a million, never mind one in a thousand. That's right. Um, likely time frame, you know, if this happens, would be probably fall, you know, maybe September, maybe November, I don't know. Well, uh, November, try to avoid because we might just get invited back to New Zealand. And if we do, then we'll be yeah, most. Maybe I'll go where we had it then. I'm trying to think so in Las Vegas, it's very hot in the summer. I mean, it could be 50 degrees centigrade. Oh, I'm sorry, October, November, I want to keep okay. the reserve. So in that case, it could be January, February. But yeah, okay. how, is, how is the weather in Las Vegas in January? It can be, it can be a little bit, it's about 5 degrees higher than the Phoenix, so it can be a little bit sometimes in January. It could also be shirtly weather as well, depends on the... You know, it's desert, so in the day, it could be anywhere between, you know, 10 degrees centigrade and uh, 20, low 20s. At night, it could be freezing or it could be 10 degrees centigrade. Mm-hmm. It depends on uh, uh, the weather that comes in. Okay. Well, thank you, Keith, and thank you, Ludwig. Uh, I think I've told you about the Frank Lloyd Wright Institute. Uh, what I am planning to do, uh, if you have done uh, four of these courses, this is one. And the uh, uh, previous courses are available on DVDs, uh, and there are courses coming, as you heard. And if you're interested, what I could do is the same as what Frank Lloyd Wright did uh, give you a letter, and this letter will say that you have done the four courses and to the satisfaction, to my satisfaction, you have acquired knowledge which I would judge to be equivalent to a bachelor's degree or something like that. And if you're interested in further work, then we already have candidates for the master's degree and the PhD degree. And uh, I don't say any more about that now, but if you're interested, you can contact 
us and I'll tell you more on an individual basis. Uh, again, it's just a letter, just a letter, no accreditation. Uh, for a time, I was toying with the idea that I would go to an accreditation body here in Hungary. As, as you know, this Martinium is a is a, adult education, continuing education institute. And in Hungary, there's such a thing as an accrediting board for continuing education. And the institute, Martinum, has a very good relationship with this board. And uh, it seems to me that we could do that. We ask that board, accreditation board, right here in Hungary to give us this stamp of approval. That was my first idea. And then I thought it over and I said, well, I'm a proud man. Mm -hmm. and they don't know any more about this particular branch of economics, what we are talking about here. So what their stamp of approval is so meaningless that I would just uh, it's demeaning for me to go to them and say, here, this is my plan, give me the stuff. No. The, the strings are attached. <laughs> the strings. Well, that's the other thing. And uh, obviously they will consult ec uh, economists, ah. and, and uh, none of them, uh, you know... Friedman's ghost will have something to say about this. Yeah. You know, Professor, your letter, you have to write it on asbestos. Make sure it's fireproof because somebody will have this. So, you know, if you're interested, now, what would a master's degree uh, mean or what, what is involved? I would say, uh, at the minimum, you would write a thesis which would attach, attack one of those, or address one of those problems we are discussing here. Uh, so marginal productivity of labor or marginal productivity of capital would be an appropriate title. And that would be, uh, of course, you can count on my help. I, uh, I would help you get started. And as you uh, write your thesis, I would make comments and make suggestions and help you to come out out to the final product. So that's uh, that's just an example. But if you are interested in the actual market and trading, then think in terms of the basis. Now, basis is not just for gold and silver. In fact, the gold basis is the most recent thing because the gold price was stable up until 1971, so there was no future market. Once a price is stable, then no room for futures market. So it was in 1971 that gold futures started trading in Canada. At that time in the US it was still illegal to trade in gold. But it opened up in uh, 75, and uh, now we have a history. But the history of silver trading goes back another two decades, because silver price was fluctuating uh, for more than 100 years. And silver trading started in earnest in 
futures markets in the United States, I would say uh, pretty soon after World War II. I, would, uh, I, I don't know that for sure, but I think 1948, maybe 1950, thereabouts. So all this record is available. So you could go back and calculate the basis for more than half a century for silver, not for gold, but for silver. And of course then there are other metals, and there are agricultural commodities, and they all have their basis. Energy futures are interesting because their backwardation seems to be a more normal condition than in, in um, the metals market. So, you know, if you want to do that, that's, that's a fine topic and we, have, we are fortunate enough to have Sandy. How about one on why Brent, crude and uh, WTI are diverging sure. and so on? There's stuff going sure. on there. And, and uh, natural gas, yep. and, you know. And, oh, and another thing is that there are these complexes like the soybean complex, which means the soybean, soy meal, and soy oil, you see. And uh, the, there's a lot of interesting arbitrage possibilities. So, I mean, that's virgin field. It has been touched uh, from the point of view of basis. And, uh, and uh, there's another complex, uh, like the crude oil and gasoline future. Yeah, diesel or distillates. Yeah. So, there are, you know, these fields. Nobody ever touched them, but uh, we already have a core theory which could be applied to that field. So, and, and uh, you can make suggestions that you're interested in this and then we'll take a look at it, whether this is suitable or not. So I mentioned this to you. Oh, so I would, I would envisage that uh, if you have done these basic introductory courses like this, and there are four of those, then another year and a plus a thesis could earn you uh, what I would consider equivalent to a master's degree. And one more year and the second thesis at a uh, higher level, slightly, I don't have to uh, think of something very <laughs> demanding, uh, but hopefully connected to the master thesis, mm -hmm. then it would give you what I would consider equivalent to a PhD degree. So think about it, there's no more rush, but uh, if you are interested and you like the ideas of your... A lot of stuff is on the internet and my website and I could advise you on other sources on the internet available and uh, you, could, you could find it interesting and rewarding. So that's uh, as much as I wanted to say about our future plans. Now, back to questions. Last call for questions, comments, and criticism. I, I know you explained in your um, previous writings that uh, the discount mechanism is not used to finance production it is only used to finance the... It's too dogmatic, I, I didn't say that. Uh, you know, 
at the later stages, when the semi-finished product is getting ready for the consumer market, it can be financed. There is a cutoff point, you know. You, you weren't here yesterday, but I talked about salinity of the river as it approaches the ocean, you know. Because the, so uh, there is a certain point after which the semi-finished product is already part of the social circulating capital, but it still needs to go through certain final stages. When you reach that point, then production can be financed through the discount rate mechanism. Yeah, I mentioned because there was a question of fee. And we know that bills are endorsed on the back, which, which means they get passed on. So this gold backing behind it is used as a medium of payment. Of course, on the final product, it's a market. Both goods and product is well, goes into the product goes to the consumer and is retired from the market, it's not available anymore, and the bill is also paid to be drawn. But obviously you, you can concatenate the payments, but you cannot finance the whole production line with um, well, not from one end to the other, not from the no. primary producer, farmer or miner, no. No. Those early stages, there's too much risk involved, and and that um, excludes that section of the production line. It cannot be financed. It has to be financed through the bond market, lending and borrowing. But as I say, there's a cutoff point at that moment. The maturing good enters social certain capital and bill, bills can be drawn on their movement to the ultimate consumer, provided that it reaches the ultimate consumer in less than 91 days. Okay? I, I think you really made a very good mental picture of the shop where all the bills are on display. And I think the cutoff point is easily visible because Certain bills are left on the shelf that nobody wants to touch. In the shop, um, visitors it's not, it's can not, choose. It's not like that. It just too, moves too slowly. Uh, yes, but the, the, it still moves. He, he wants to buy the uh, and he discounts. Gives the money to in, in order to buy the bill. He's going to pick and choose. And he leaves those who are suspect, or he leaves those who are, in his judgment, the goods are too slow or too risky. Or I mean, that cutoff point is visible in the shop, the yeah, one, 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 one thing on this, the guy who runs the discount house has a pretty good idea what he's doing. Yes. He's not going to even bring it into his store. You know, if you've got a rotten cabbage, you're not going to put it on with the nice ones. You're not even going to buy it. So it already acts as a filter, and then the customers come in and choose and so on. So, uh, you know what I'm saying? That's another function of the, the discount house to already filter this stuff, I, I guess. Now, here's another uh, good uh, uh, metaphor, simile, or whatever you want to call it, which makes 
this concept of the cutoff point quite vivid. Uh, we, we all know the bicycle, and you know that you can have various speeds, high speed, middle speed, low speed. But how low can the speed be? It cannot be very low because then you fall off, you see? So the physicist would say the momentum, the momentum has to be high enough to keep the moving bicycle in in equilibrium, is that the word or whatever the word yeah, is, uh, so that you won't fall off. And that's exactly the same with the moving consumer goods. If they move too slowly, and some of them have to, because the, of the technological nature of the production. No matter how much, how desirable it would be to have that financed with the bill market, you just won't be able to, just like you won't be able to ride a bicycle at a very, very low speed. You have to pick up speed to be able to continue your bike trip. And the same way, the movement of the consumer good, the maturing consumer to the ultimate consumer has to have a certain minimum speed. And that minimum speed which has to be surpassed in order to, as is that cutoff point. So when the item, the maturing consumer good becomes part of the social circulating capital, and then ever after you can finance it, uh, its movement to the ultimate consumer. I like that bicycle example. I don't know how, how about you, but I think this, if you ever <laughs> ridden a bike, then you know what I'm talking to. Uh, another way we want to look at it is it's sort of a race to the finish line. What happens first? Does the bill come due, or has the customer bought the stuff and paid? Is the money there waiting for it? If the money is already there waiting for it, no problem. But if the, if the merchandise slows down, the clock wins. The, the bill expires and two-thirds of the uh, cloth is still on the shelf. No gold has come in. Oops. Right? So now you're, uh, I think somebody said, now the, the, the uh, clothier has to break his piggy bank. Yeah, Peter. And, and pay that bill, or else he's got a big problem. So that was a miscalculation, and that bill, that, that those goods slowed down for whatever reason. So that's what it is. So you need a little leeway. You hope you sell your stuff a little bit before this is due. You don't want it to, to just, just, you know what I'm saying? And the beauty of it is the self-correcting mechanism, because through this communication, using the discount rate, the word spreads that Oh, careful, this may not be the right speed or the right product or the right time uh, for seasonal things and therefore you have to be careful because if you don't sell the merchandise within 91 days then you may incur losses and you won't be able to pay off your bill. Remember the, to pay off the bill at maturity, 
is very important. If you are a merchant and you defaulted on a real bill, then your name will be blacklisted and your sons and grandsons and so on cannot start their own business under that name. They would have to change their <laughs> names. And even then, if it uh, becomes uh, uh, known that you, you started a new business under a different name, uh, the blacklisting will still apply because it's far more rigorous than the law against fraud. If, you know, that's how serious it is. So if you end up with a loss, you couldn't sell your merchandise, it becomes obsolete by next year, and then uh, you, you put up the difference from your own pocket. If you don't, you default, finished, forget about business, not under your name. You, you, have, you fall back to the labor force. You have to go back and work for wages. As an independent businessman, you are finished. So they take it very seriously. I'm talking about history now. We don't have a real bill market, but when they did, this is how it worked. That's why you saw so many uh, uh, names, uh, Mr. Smith and Son, or Mr. Black and, and Partners, or some well, banking houses in Switzerland, so these old family, go back to the French Revolution or before, or, uh, you know, uh, the refer time of Reformation, where a lot of uh, Protestants from France arrived in uh, Switzerland, and then uh, they uh, had their great banking families, and some of them still around. You know, why? Because they have a record, an absolute clean record, that never ever uh, missed a payment day. They scrupulously <coughs> discharge their obligations on every day. So that's the way it works, and it did work, and I'm sure it would work in the future too. So you can hire policemen as many as you want, but this type of self-discipline and this type of uh, uh, honesty uh, is only possible you don't like the word free market, so... Well, it's been warped so much. No. It's like capitalism has been warped. Yeah. And and, right. and classical, it's not liberals anymore, it's classical liberals and whatever, so... Yeah. Well, I, I hope the word honesty is still not overused. Well, let's define is. What is is? Remember... Uh, what is so what is honesty? Is. Yeah, okay. So I just thought this was important, that, that uh, those merchants took it absolutely seriously, that the real bill has to be paid. Uh, on the date of maturity. Even one day delay would, uh, could ruin or at least put your credit question mark next to your name. Integrity is another good word for that. Integrity, commitment. Integrity. You, you gave your word, you know, today it's like ironclad contracts. So there, you know, there are ironclad contract lawyers who work on how to break ironclad contracts. I mean, that's not. The handshake, 
not too many years ago, we did serious business on handshakes, big machinery and, oh, and you know, and a handshake was better than anything else because you trust the person, he's been in business, like you said, maybe multi-generational, and there was no question, no question. Whereas if it's a piece of paper, well, I could give you examples, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know. So government uh, approval, charter, is no substitute for that basic honesty and the meaning of a handshake. You, you can't legislate morality. You can, you can, oh, you don't do this, oh, no, no, that, then you go there, oh, don't do this, oh, no, don't do that. Forget it. You cannot do that. It's, it's constantly looking. You can always break a contract, or you can do something like, um, it may be our currency, but it's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> In your face, you know, like. All right, thank you very much, Rudy.